This is the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. eCity creates websites, marketing campaigns, and magic for higher ed institutions, large and small. Every digital challenge has a solution. eCity's talented team of problem solvers will help you find yours. And now, here's your host, Stephen App. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. I am your host, Stephen App. Uh, I am really excited for today's show. And I know that I say that on every show, which is because I am genuinely really excited to record these. Um, And, you know, today what I'm excited about is we obviously talk a lot about content on this show. This is a show that explores things like blogging and websites and social and email. And at the core of that is obviously content. Uh, But, you know, what we don't talk a lot about on this show are people and the people that are behind that content. And I'm not just talking about content strategists, but stakeholders, team members, subject matter experts. Uh, But we are changing that today, and we're changing that uh, in a really great way because my guest today is Michael Powers. He is the, I guess I'll say, newly minted Executive Director of Marketing and Communications at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, or as you probably know it, IUP. And uh, today we're going to be talking about content strategists and their roles as, you know, pseudo content counselors and, and working, uh, working on the people end of content strategy. So uh, let's jump right into it. Mike Powers, thank you so much for joining the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be on the show. Yeah, I mentioned how excited I am because we are going to talk about the people side of content strategy today. And, you know, when we first connected about doing this show, we had a a really great conversation. Um, And I just thought you opened my eyes to a new side of things. It's easy to talk about content. We forget to to talk about who's writing, who's producing that content. Uh, Yeah, and that's uh, something that over time has really come out to me as just as really key to actually being successful in creating great content. Um, And if you look at like the the quad that um, we often look at as from Christina Halverson that we all often look at as content strategists. I mean, people is a huge chunk of that and really being careful about how you manage that part of content strategy has become more important to me over time. Yeah. I mean, people are, is half that, half that chart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think when, when we talked, one of the things that I, I thought you said that really opened my eyes when you said, you know, content strategists can easily fall into the trap of, almost looking at internal stakeholders and saying things like, oh, you know, if, if only that person would, would listen to me or why don't they just, you know, do what I'm telling them to do. Um, but, but you really say that that's the wrong way to go about it. And, and I'm curious to know, you know, why that is. Well, it is a really easy way of thinking to fall into. I think especially maybe with content strategy where you say, oh, we're going to do some content strategy. What is that? <laughs> so uh, it's like you've got this sort of secret knowledge and this expertise that maybe other people don't understand. And it's really easy to say, like, oh, my God, if they would just do what we told them to, it would be fine. But, um, you know, that's not it's not the road to uh, actual success and so- something like this. And, you know, so much of content strategy really is about collaboration and process. Um, the way I like to think about it is uh, collaboration before conformance. So it's it's easy to fall into that conformance mindset. You know, we've got a style guide, we've got tone and voice guidelines. This is how you do it. Why won't they just do it that way? Um, but it just doesn't lead to great 
content in the end because the success of your content depends on the the work of those other people too. I mean, you, you can't write all the content for all the people. So unless you brought them into that process, you're not going to have the right elements there to, to do what you want. It might be worse in higher ed where a great responsibility doesn't necessarily come with great power. Now, um, wait a second, Mike. You're you're not going to say that higher ed is siloed on me, are you? That's that's blasphemous. I, <laughs> I, I might be suggesting that, although I'm always a little bit skeptical that higher ed is so much different than corporate, government, or nonprofit worlds. I've heard tales of pretty deep silos uh, in those areas as well. Um, but I think maybe some of the differences, say for a, a marketing and communications area, uh, everybody at a university is a communicator. Uh, you have all these professors who have written books and dissertations and articles, and their job every day is communicating. So it's a little bit different in a place where like, you know, well, we're the communicators. We know how to do it. <laughs> everybody has an idea and they even you know have some authority in their field even if they don't necessarily know how to do the kind of communication you're helping them with so i think it's a little bit harder to get people to follow your lead there and that means collaboration just becomes more important yeah i imagine in higher ed it's it's especially important right we we on an earlier episode this season we talked to amanda costello and um she mentions the fact that you know when, when we're working with subject matter experts we you know, as marketers, we we don't have an expertise uh, in a lot of the research and a lot of the academic areas that they specialize in. Um, I imagine you know that that type of collaboration is is just vital when it comes to to especially working with faculty. Yes, yeah, and it, you know we do have great expertise in and how to do some of these things, but we don't necessarily know the what of what, what our faculty are doing. Uh, is this a significant discovery or not? Uh, is that a great journal to be published in or not? Or even what is that research all about? You just can't do it uh, without that collaborative relationship between your stakeholders and your subject matter experts and you as communication professional. And that's the reason if you sort of come in and say, hey, this is how we're going to do it, it's not going to go over very well because you're talking to someone who is an expert in this and you're not. I mean, I think understanding the the value is is easier. I imagine it's probably harder to actually execute on that mindset as a content strategist to to almost acknowledge where our limitations are. The way that you've described it, um, which I think is really interesting, is you've said that you know content strategists double as content counselors. Um, you know, how can a content strategist become a, a content counselor? Well, I think the first step is just not falling into that sort of combative mindset, and um, there is a lot of that in academia. I, I have a PhD in English. And I feel like one of the things you're taught getting a PhD is you know, how to fight verbally and make arguments and win arguments and try to pin your opponent to the mat and, you know, shake your finger in their face and say, you're wrong. Um, but that's not actually what works for these kinds of things. So stepping away from that combative mindset, uh, just because someone doesn't immediately buy into your ideas about something is I think a really important first step. Um, a second step is really to 
always try to step back from the requests that you get and uh, try to drive back to what is it they're actually trying to do. Uh, one thing I often say, uh, and I've been for 10 years, if you need a website, come to me. Uh, but nobody wants a website. And I say that even though they walk into my office saying, I need a website. Uh, the truth is they don't need a website. They're asking for a website because they've got some other goal in mind. They want applications for their program. They need people to attend an event. They need to promote their new book. They need donations for a project. Those are the things that they actually want. Um, it can be hard to keep that in mind uh, when someone comes in demanding a website uh, yesterday. Uh, but it is important to keep in mind that behind what those requests are, are a real need. And once you have some agreement or understanding of what that is, you can do a better job with it. Yeah, it's essentially, right, understanding that the request is a means to an end um, in terms of understanding what the tangible request is. I mean, I wonder, too, how can a content strategist work with, uh, we'll, say, we'll say, subject matter experts or stakeholders? I mean, how do you approach this when maybe we are talking about audiences instead of, you know, tangible deliverables, um, when somebody is talking about an audience that they know, you know, how can we kind of, as a content strategist, become a counselor there and, and not just, you know, do we take them at their word? They know the audience better than we do. Uh, how do you suggest partnering in that, um, in that situation? Yeah, that issue of audience is, is interesting. And I, I've had um, a lot of uh, interest at IEP about, you know, how do we make content that is good for millennials? And now how do we make content that is good for uh, Gen Z? And so, oh, this this has to appeal to Gen Z. So well, it's all I'd about like Gen it, Z now. <laughs> I'd, I'd like it to be all memes and emojis, like no text on the page, just, just memes and emojis. And um, that's not far off from actual requests that I've, I've gotten. <laughs> and the thing to remember there is that there is a real and a laudable goal behind that is that this person is not just thinking in terms of, you know, their organizational objectives. They're thinking in terms of user needs. They are thinking in terms of adapting that content to the audience. Now, they may have some misconceptions about that audience, and that's one place you sort of need to, to start um, if you have existing research about your audience that you can share. Uh, that's really helpful. I mean, things like the Noel Levitz, I guess it's roughly Noel Levitz surveys are really great research. And they often, uh, you know, put the lie to some things that people think they know about, like, you know, they don't use email at all, or they're all off Facebook. And there's, there's some truth to those things. But trying to bring it back to some real uh, factual data uh, can help, but you know, I also just say, hey, we're we're both sitting here trying to take this content and make it work for this audience, and that's that's really a, a big step uh, for uh, a lot of people. Talking earlier, you mentioned a lot of times as a as a marketer, somebody will come to you and they'll say, I need a website. They'll, you know, that's the request, um, and I think even when it comes to to what goes on the website, right? Like everyone has had someone knock on their door and hand them a Word document and say, put this on the website. Um, I know that in your role, you push back on that at, at IUP. Uh, I'm curious to know how you push back on that proc uh, on that practice and, and, you know, what others can learn from, from the tactics that you take in terms of making it a collaborative process. 
Sure. And, and I do really try not to think of it as pushing back. Because again, once you're pushing back, you're, you're again into that sort of combative kind of uh, situation there. And what you're really looking for is that collaboration. And uh, one of the things I uh, decided to do a while ago is this, you know, if I have the opportunity to set the agenda for a meeting, there's no reason why that meeting just has to be people sitting around a conference table talking to each other. Uh, there's no reason it can't be kind of like a, a, a mini workshop. So, you know, if you just have that meeting sitting across the table from each other, it really is likely to end up in sort of an order taking thing, right? They say, I want this. And you're going to say, well, we should do it this other way. And then you're in that position of like, you know, seeming like you're, you're just saying no to the request. Um, and because you're not the subject matter expert, there's a pretty good chance that you might even be suggesting the wrong solution because you mm. don't really understand their problem yet. Right. So um, thinking of it, and I don't generally call it a mini workshop, but just say here, you know, let's let's work on this document. Let's try to diagram these things. But it can be a way of getting deeper into that problem trying to be solved. Um, it shows that you care about their issues and not just being the web police, right? Like, oh, I know you're not going to let me do it this way, but, you know, here's here's what we should do. And then say, say no, I'm not going to let you do it that way. You sort of step back and say, oh, that, that's interesting. Let's Let's dive into that in some way. Hey, podcast listeners. If you're anything like me, you've likely found yourself listening to more and more podcasts lately. And if that's the case, you're not alone. Recent research shows that 26% of Americans now listen to podcasts monthly. That's higher than the percentage of Americans using Twitter. For many podcast consumers, the rise in podcast popularity has led to dreams of producing a branded podcast for their own institution. Unfortunately, the road to planning and producing a podcast isn't as straightforward as consuming one. Luckily, the team at eCity has just released a new ebook that details the aspects of podcasting that you need to consider before pressing the record button on your own show, as well as how to ask for help if you're struggling to get started. Grab the ebook now at eCityInteractive.com slash resources. That's eCityInteractive.com slash resources. And as always, thanks for listening. One of the things that I imagine you face um is something similar that we discussed earlier which is right that you know your stakeholders or or your team members not understanding the value of what you're proposing i I can imagine someone coming in and knocking on your door and saying here's a word doc put it on the website you coming back and saying oh you know let's let's work on this design workshop and, and really kind of think through this let's take a step back i can imagine a lot of people probably saying to you i don't have time for that how do you work with them when that's the response? How do you get someone to see the value of what you're proposing? Yeah, well, so, I mean, there are times when a Word doc comes through the door and it has uh, the name of someone very high up in the hierarchy <laughs> on it. And that Word doc goes on the website and there, there's no questions asked. And, you know, it, it's a little bit situational as to where do we think or where do I think having a different approach is going to pay off? Uh, for that. And, you know, is the client someone who's willing to work in this way? And, you know, can we really make a better product by by doing it that way? Um, beyond that, I mean, 
designing these so that by the time you get to the end of, say, an hour, if that's your standard meeting length, that there's some payoff there. And I actually think that's a little bit easier in a workshop sort of format than a, a meeting that's not really that structured. I mean, you could talk for an hour, or you could talk for two hours, or you could talk for three hours. Uh, but when we when I do structure it, so, hey, we have this activity here and, you know, we are going to write job stories for this website before we go any further. You kind of know when that's done and now you've achieved something and now you're walking off saying, hey, I, we actually did something. And then if that work continues to inform the project as it goes forward, you have the opportunity to continue to show them the value of that sort of foundational talk or research as you create the final product. Is there a, a go-to exercise for you in when you have a situation like that, Mike? So when someone is a little bit maybe skeptical of the idea, you know, to your point, if you can get them to do that one activity where they start seeing the value, you can kind of um, solicit more buy-in from them. Is there a go-to activity that you like to say, you know, let's let's just do this one thing, and I think once we do this, you'll you'll see what I'm I'm working on here. Yeah, the one that has really been working for me over the last year uh, since I, I read about it in uh, Sarah Richards' book on on content design is uh, user stories and job stories, and and I'm I'm embarrassed that I it took me so long to to find them and to find that the power of that. But typically, if someone comes in asking for something, they have some pretty well-defined organizational goals that they would like this project to accomplish for them. And, you know, one easy way to start that conversation is like, hey, let's make sure I understand what your goals are. And I might put up, here's a guess. This is what I think you're going for. Can you confirm that? And if I got it right, that's great. If I got it wrong, you're going to you're going to tell me how, how it's wrong. But the next step is considering the other side, which is the user perspective. And uh, the user story or job story format is really, really powerful for even without doing a lot of research beforehand, getting the client to start to think about what that perspective might look like. So uh, the basic format for the user story, it's really just a sort of structured sentence. Uh, and it would be, you know, as a, insert the audience there, um, I want to, the thing that that audience would like to do on the site, so that I, and then what? what is the result there, right? So um, uh, one of the examples from uh, Sarah Richard's book comes to mind, right? So as a homeowner, I want to know where fracking is happening so that I know if I need to be concerned about fracking near my house. That little bit of structure goes a long way towards structuring that conversation. And if you work on that for 45 minutes, it's usually not hard to get three, four, five, you know, just a couple key uh, job stories or user stories out there. That really provides a key for the rest of the project because then you can go back to the goals and say, okay, um, you're trying to explain to people uh, why fracking is completely safe uh, while your audience is really worried about what's going to be happening to them so the, and, the, and their house. So it really starts to put them in that mindset of, you know, we need to balance our goals with our users' needs. And that, that can set off a much, uh, a really good tone for the rest of that project. Yeah, I imagine it's probably not uncommon for that 
perspective when someone goes through that exercise versus the original goals they've set out for them to take a step back and say, oh, these these don't align. Right, right. Or if they sometimes they they don't align and that there's not much that can be done about that, but at least starts to suggest how we might start to structure the project to to help with that to, to some extent. If you if you get buy in after that exercise, um, my, you know, I'm curious, are, are there other exercises that you might uh, suggest to to colleagues who are looking to mimic these design workshops? Yeah, I mean. And these, I don't think any of this is, is no, none of this is original to me. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you end up doing that and you may still have some disagreement about, you know, what are the users trying to do? That can be a great point to do a uh, top task survey, the kind that Jerry McGovern talks about, which is we put an intercept um, survey on that particular web page or on that particular website and, you know, basically ask people to rank all the tasks that they might do on that page and pick their top three um, there. And he's, he's got a whole book about that if you, if, if you want to read that, but that can be good for, you know, either confirming or not confirming what we've come up with sort of based on our initial understanding. Um, competitive analysis is another really good place to go to from the job stories, uh, because often people don't just come with a Word doc. They come with a Word doc in another university's website and say, this is what I want. Um, and often the things we react to first on a website are going to be the, you know, the overall design or the colors or there's a great photograph on it or an interesting interface element. Uh, but once you have those job stories, if you start to do a competitive analysis here, we say, OK, well, our our first job story was that, you know, uh, MBAs want to know what the payoff of this program is going to be. Uh, then you can start to compare those different sites based on how well do they fulfill that user need. And that starts to become, become a more interesting and relevant conversation. So rather than do exactly what they had, it's, oh, now I can see how what they have might not meet the need that we have, or, or maybe it, it you know, it looks great, but now I can see that how from a, a student perspective it wouldn't, wouldn't work as well. Uh, other places you can go from there are uh, pair writing. Now, that, that can be a really lengthy process, right? And pair writing is just two people sit, one computer, and uh, take turns writing in. If you have a big screen, that, that's a big help. Um, what I've found is that you know, we can do a page or two that way. But after that, we often have enough of an understanding that a writer can sort of go on from there and continue in the same fashion. Um, and uh, another uh, uh, approach that you could use in pair, uh, in pair with job stories or even maybe as an alternative is to do a uh, content strategy mad lib. Oh, see, now we're talking. Now Now this sounds a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I've I believe that it's uh, Sarah Vachter-Botcher invented it and then Megan Casey put it in her book. But I, I guess I just said that on the air. So I, don't, I don't know where it came from exactly, but I learned it from both of them. It's, it is a fun thing and it's something that people don't expect walking into a, a meeting. And you basically have a sentence there that says, you know, 
our, I wish I could remember the sentence off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, on our website, we needed to fulfill business goal and business goal so that our users can user goal and user goal, and they will feel this emotion and this emotion. Um, it's a fun thing to put together, but then it's a really great document to be able to pull out as you start to look back at what happened. So, you know, we did this workshop and then a week or two later, we have some completed copy. You can take this Mad Lib, put it up against that and say, okay, does that, does that do what, what we wanted it to do? Which again, helps get people away from just the emotional response. You know, that's, that's the wrong word for that concept. You can't, you have to, you have to say it this way, which might be a minor issue as opposed to the bigger issue about you know, does it actually meet the user needs and the organizational goals that we had? Mike, I know you mentioned with pair writing in particular that it can sometimes be a pretty lengthy process. Um, You know, if you've only got a a short amount of time, I imagine you need to either focus on shorter exercises or just a smaller number of exercises. Um, What about if you you do have instant buy-in? Are there any go-to exercises that you have in terms of just you know, hey, I've, I've got this team for, you know, two, th- two, three hours. I know you mentioned that as, as a long workshop earlier, but what if, you, what if you do have someone for a longer amount of time? Do you just do more exercises or are there certain exercises that you might prioritize if you know going into it, you've, you've got a little bit more time? Again, it really depends on the project. I mean, that might be great. We're going to do three hours of pair writing and we're going to knock this thing out and that, that's going to be good. Uh, if it's, you know, the beginning of a longer uh project where we really do need to do some more content strategy work before we set pen to paper. Um, I've really had great success with the uh, brand sort exercise and uh, Margot Bloomstein actually sells a deck of cards, which is which is great for this. Uh, it's, gosh, I don't know how many cards. I want to say like 100 cards that have different adjectives on them and they might be sassy, cutting edge, traditional, um, and it used to lead people through an exercise in which, you know, first they say, okay, these are us and these are who we'd like to be, and these aren't us at all. Uh, and then you take away the ones that aren't them at all and then get them to start categorizing, basically describing who they would like, what they would like their brand to be in the future based on these cards and eventually boiling that down to a few keywords that describe the brand. And that that is can be a, a lengthy process of, of maybe 90 minutes or, or two hours. Uh, but the process of doing that, and you can do it with a larger group, is really powerful. And you find that, you know, once you go back to the next time, okay, last time we met, we decided that our three like key brand characteristics were this, this, and this. And everyone's going to nod their head and say, because they participated in that and their, their wisdom about who they are is in that. Um, and now you've got something that every time we create something, we can go back and say, Hey, does it, does it match those brand key characteristics that we, that we figured out? Uh, another way of doing this, um, that I've liked, and I learned this from, uh, Ida Allen and Odin Runeberg, who are both from uh, from Norway, uh, is a core model workshop. Um, I think they've they've published some things out there about it. But this is looking really sort of at a particular page and not not writing the page, but taking those organizational goals, taking those user needs, and really figuring out using that 
to figure out what belongs on each page, what doesn't belong on each page. And again, that, that's going to be a two or three hour process, but really, really worth it. Um, and you're going to have people at the end of that who are really invested in the page that they've helped design, really. I'm really curious to know when you're going through these activities, you know, are there are there moments where something just clicks for for a colleague of yours? What I mean, what does that look like? Is is it just like their face changes and they they're you know after they see a completed Mad Libs? I mean, like what does that look like when all of a sudden, as a content strategist, you know from your perspective, oh you know, okay, they they get it now. Like we we can really move now. I think it's more that moving from I thought I was here for a meeting uh, to they're just really involved in the activity is when you can kind of tell that that things are clicking. Um, and that's great because at that point, it's it's not like it's some trick or something that we're now talking about what we need to be talking about. Right. If you if you've picked the right activity you're now doing it. You're now doing the strategizing that you need to do to create a successful product. Hey everyone, the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast is part of Connect EDU, a podcast network bringing together brilliant minds in the higher ed space and breaking down silos. You can check it out at connectedu.network where you can find great shows no matter where you work on campus, as well as resources for first-time and long-time podcasters. You can also follow along on Twitter at ConnectEDUPod and hashtag ConnectEDU. You know, Mike, me, when I do this podcast, a lot of times when I'm talking to my guests, you know, it's really obvious what the goal is. Oh, you know, we wanted to get more leads from our website. Oh, we are trying to uh, build an audience or, um, you know, increase applications or thank donors or, or whatnot. When we talk about the people processes, though, within content strategy, I imagine that success is a lot more anecdotal and a lot more personal. Uh, Is that accurate? Well, I think there's two areas you could look at that success, right? One is the success of the, the, the end product, right? Did the content that you created or the website you created or whatever it was, did that succeed uh, at its goals? Uh, but then there's, you know, also the success of the process there. Um, and it can be a little bit different. I mean, it might be that you create a product that really works, but the process by why, by which you got there leaves everyone feeling a little off. Um, you know, it wasn't a great experience making that, uh, in which case you may have trouble replicating replicating that in the future but um if you do have a process that's really successful um that's something that builds on itself right and then you have people who want to work on that sort of project again or do a different similar project uh it's also possible to look at previous work things and say see this site we did it by looking at all the stuff that I'm telling you about. We did it through workshopping it in these ways. And if you would like to have a site that is at the same level as that, that's that's the path to get there. We could also take your Word document and put it on the web. That's that's also possible and, and does happen. Uh, but I guess the success that I see there is, you know, more and more people starting to see what we're doing as a collaboration and a conversation about how we're going to get there rather than putting in their order for something to be done. 
Yeah, and that brings up a really interesting point, I think, because you your office is not unlike many offices within higher education, right? We there's we're small shops, we have limited resources. I mean, are you do you become a victim of your own success as as you do these workshops as more people maybe catch wind of it and see what it takes to create better content and buy into the process? How do you scale that workshop? I mean, how are you know, are there any tips and tricks or is it a matter of it's just going to take time? I think it is a matter of that, that it's just going to take time and it starts to get into prioritization, right? There's just no way to do all the stuff that needs to be done at any university at the level we would like to do everything. It's always a little strategic about what we need to spend more time on and what we're going to spend less time on. So um, until we have unlimited resources and unlimited staff and, and budget to do these things, uh, we, you do have to pick and choose what's going to happen. Uh, now, to the extent that you've got a mindset of, you know, it, you know, at the very least that when we're developing uh, communication, we are considering both our organizational needs and the user needs uh, and our audiences at the same time. To the extent that you can infuse that and in, that kind of thinking into the organization, that's that's good even for the projects that, you know, your office doesn't do uh, personally. Hey, everyone, a quick shout out to the agency that makes this show possible, eCity Interactive. You know, I really do love coming to work every day at eCity, and that's not just because everyone shares my love of donuts, uh, but that's really because I get to collaborate with a talented team working on everything from user experience to content and digital marketing to web design and development and a whole lot more. Our work has earned us an incredible roster of education clients, including the University of Pennsylvania, George Washington University, Petty School, Cornell, Drexel, Rutgers, and many others. So if you're looking to improve your web and digital presence and better communicate your school's story, visit us online at ecityinteractive.com and get in touch. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast and a really special thank you to you for shedding light on a topic uh, when we talk about people that has here to now you know, not really adequately been covered uh, on the podcast. Thank you. It's, it's been fun to do. Uh, before we let you go, a couple housekeeping matters that we do every week on the show. First of all, you've been so intelligent on this show. Where can listeners find more of your insights? Well, I am on Twitter at MJ Powers. That's M-J-P-O-W-E-R-S. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Although, as you well know, I often forget to check LinkedIn for a few days. Uh and uh, I do have a blog. It is at museroom.com. The name is a, a nod to my previous life as a scholar of James Joyce. So it's a, a word from Finnegan's Wake. It's M-U-S-E-Y-R-O-O-M.com. I don't believe anything has been posted there since uh, 2012. So I don't know if it's the, the spot to get the latest and greatest wisdom, but it, it is a spot. And I know, you know, we talk about online, but offline, I believe you are heading across the pond soon. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. I am. I am uh, going to be presenting at uh, Content Ed in uh, London coming up in June. And uh, I'm going to be talking about designing an effective content measurement strategy. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to some of the things that I've been 
talking about here is that, um, you know, developing a measurement strategy in isolation isn't going to be sustainable for nothing else if, if, if no one has come to agreement on what the right measures are. You can measure all you want, but you're not going to be able to affect any change in the things that you're trying to measure. And uh, this October, I'm going to be presenting as part of the uh, Content Slash UX Academy at Hyatt Web in Sacramento. I'm going to be presenting that with uh, Amy Grace Wells, who's going to be talking about user testing. Deb Aoki, who's going to be talking about sketching and storytelling for uh, UX and content design. Andy Welfi from Adobe is going to be talking about writing for interfaces. And uh, I'm going to be talking about measuring and testing your way to better content. Uh, and of course, each week on the show, we ask our colleagues to to give a shout out to someone who deserves a little bit more recognition of their work. Uh, and Mike, you're, you're a rock star. You came with a couple people uh, ready to roll for this. I did. It's so hard to choose, though. I, I want to mention all the people. So if you're not mentioned, I, I wanted to mention you. <laughs> um, uh, but I'll start with uh, uh, Elena Weens, who is a former high ed person, and she now works for the Flint, Michigan Chamber of Commerce. But you might know her as a organizer of a strategy car. Twitter chats. Uh, they've been a, a Friday afternoon. She'll start posting a question out there on the strategy car hashtag and people will respond. She started a podcast and actually the second episode, I think just came out this week. Uh, it's about the big and small ways the web touches the world and the people in it. And it's been really interesting so far. So I would definitely check that out. The second shout out is to uh, Day Kibbles. Uh, she's the manager of undergraduate recruitment at Western University up in uh, London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, and she is going to be doing a presentation at Confab on collaboration this June. And it really uh, ties in closely with some of the stuff that I've been talking about here. I, I've seen her do this before. It's it's going to be great. I don't think there's many tickets for Confab left. So if you're not already going, you should get a ticket soon. And then... Um, the last one I'm going to mention is Ashley Budd, and she is director of digital marketing for uh, Cornell alumni. Um, and you know, she's been doing, doing great stuff with um, market advancement for, for a while. But a recent thing she's been doing that's really interesting is looking at artificial intelligence for advancement. And obviously, this, this seems like it's the year AI, or at least it's the year that everybody's talking about AI. And she's been looking at some interesting uh, ways that that might affect our work in higher ed. Excellent. Well, well, Mike, I'll, I'll do it one more time. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. I wish I was coming over to London to, to see you in June, uh, but I do think we'll, we'll be able to get together in October, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that, too. Thanks for having me on the show. 